Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Wednesday nights here at Journey of the Church. Grateful that you're here. Make sure you're sitting at a table with some other people. If you're just standing around, go ahead and grab a seat. Hope you're doing well tonight. How was the food this evening? Thank you so much, Wanda and everyone who prepared that food. I heard there were some root beer floats tonight. Wonderful worship. So we're going to get started tonight. So come grab a seat. Make sure you're sitting at a table with other people. We're continuing our study in the letter called Second Corinthians. I want to begin with a little bit of a, a story. I don't know about you, but... I remember my first trip to the optometrist, you know, the eye doctor. Who's ever been to the eye doctor before? Yeah, I didn't go because I was blind as a bat or because I kept running into things. It had nothing to do with that, but I had headaches from time to time. I had headaches from time to time. And so we went to go see the optometrist. My vision was sort of blurred, but to be honest with you, I really wanted glasses. I desperately, deep down, secretly wanted glasses because I felt that they would make me look much more sophisticated. And as a fourth grader, sophistication is a really important thing. And so we go to the eye doctor, to the optometrist, and they run all these different tests. They do all these exams. They made me stand at one end of the hallway, and they had me cover one of my eyes, and they said, all right, I want you to read that placard at the end of the hallway, uh, EXWC. And then they said, all right, now I want you to cover your other eye and then read the the smallest line, the most tiniest letters that you can. So X, W, is that a D or a P? I can't really tell. And then they had me place my chin on this plastic bar. And you know what I'm talking about, right? And then all of a sudden, at any given moment, tiny cannons are going to shoot puffs of air into your pupils, dilating your pupils. Absolute worst thing. And then they take these lights and shine them all over your eyeballs and they give you all these different lenses and saying, which one is clear, the left or the right? I'm like, I don't know, the left or the right. I can't really tell the difference. But since I so deeply wanted glasses, I figured that I had to rig this. I had to lie about this or else I wouldn't end up walking out of the optometrist with glasses. And so I had to mess things up. I had to lie a little bit, you know. So I I could tell that the left one was a little bit clearer than the right, but I said the opposite. And then when I was reading letters, I made sure to throw in some like random letters that didn't look anything like it. I knew it was an X, but I would say it was a G instead just to show that my eyes needed glasses. Now, I didn't take into consideration that this could severely affect and damage my eyesight. And I also didn't take into effect that this was probably going to make my headaches even worse. I desperately wanted glasses. 
Well, after all of my trickery, after all my deceit, after all my underhanded methodology of distorting the truth here at the optometrist, all I got were lousy reading glasses. The truth was, my eyes were fine for the most part, and are fine for the most part, and the truth is, these sapphire blue babies, they don't need to be hidden behind circles of glass. But you know, when it comes to the message of the gospel, when it comes to the message of the gospel, some people tell it with great trickery and deceit, with underhanded methods of distorting the truth. You know, people use underhanded methods of distorting the truth for various reasons. Let's take a look at just three, one of which is to accomplish their own desires, whether it be for prosperity or power or prestige. People also use underhanded methods to distort the the truth in a way of watering things down so that the abrasive nature of the gospel becomes softer, safer, and simpler, and more culturally palatable, so it's easier to swallow. Or people use underhanded methods of distorting the truth to hide the fact that they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't done their homework, and they've maybe even stopped learning. You know, as followers of Jesus, we never stop learning. Never, ever, ever. We're constantly, I mean, we are encountering the living God who has created everything and who continues to create everything, and it's telling me that I've got a lot to learn. Well, this section of 2 Corinthians that we're going to explore tonight is about the message and the messenger. The message of the gospel is clear. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The message of the gospel is clear. Jesus saves, so the messenger should be too. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read from our text in view tonight. From 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, we stand here, if you're able to stand, to revere the word of God. It begins, Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. God, we thank you. that you love us and you care for us. And despite our underhanded methods of distorting your truth and using trickery and deceit, you're calling us to the life of righteousness, to turn away from things of darkness and into your glorious light. I pray you would open up our eyes so that we could see the path on which we need to tread. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Let's just hang a little bit here at this verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, therefore, that's how it begins. And now anytime we see the word therefore in Scripture, we got to backtrack because it's referencing what has just 
occurred. And if we look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the next verse is 18. And that kind of gives us an insight of what the previous material was talking about, which reads, So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. As Kim was speaking last week, we have this comparison with Moses and how his face was shining with the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So let's go back to verse 1. Therefore, or consequently, or because of this transformation that Paul has just talked about, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, this new way of seeing and reflecting transformation, we never give up. If you call yourself a Christian you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you need to learn to give up. What? Paul just said, no, we never give up. But I'll tell you what, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to learn to give up, to be a quitter. Quit giving up. Quit complaining. Quit making excuses. Quit giving up on God because God is never going to give up on you. As messengers of the gospel, let's become quitters together as a church, as a group of people. Let's become quitters, quitters who quit at giving up. Let's do some table talk tonight. How can you become a quitter who quits giving up? What are some things that you can do or tell yourself in the process? All right, so go ahead and talk to the people around you at your table, and we'll reconvene in a few minutes. All right, let's finish the thought, and we'll reconvene here. Let's continue now with verse 2. It reads, we reject, or you can also translate that as we have denounced all shameful deeds and underhanded, that is secretly deceptive methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know this. It's made visibly plain. It's made clear. We refuse to wear masks, is essentially what Paul is saying. We refuse to play games. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes. And we don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. We don't twist God's word to accomplish our own desires or to water things down or to hide the fact that we don't know what we're talking about. But how do you know if you aren't fact-checking, if you aren't fact-checking, you could easily be misled. And so what we encourage you to do here is to bring your Bibles. That's one good, good way. I mean, I could be saying stuff that's not even in the Bible right now. And some of you, if you're not following along or don't have a Bible with you or are not reading in another translation, you, you may think, well, 
That's the truth. My pastor said it. That settles it, right? I believe it. Well, I think we need to also fact check our pastors and teachers. We need to fact check our leaders, our Bible study leaders as well. I mean, we should always do this. Run it through Scripture. So I would encourage you, bring your Bible. Take notes. Because there's a lot of stuff that comes into our mind throughout the day, a lot of useless Information. I was watching a video earlier with Jeff Barnett upstairs of a polar bear ripping a walrus out of the ice. And I'm like, I was pretty radical, pretty wild. But I'm like, is that more useful than this? I remember that, but will I remember what I just read here in Scripture? Well, if I take notes, it might help. It might help me to write things down or to ask questions to ask questions, and let's create together a healthy and respectful dialogue with one another, like what we just had. But I want to encourage you. You know, you hear a lot from the pastors and from the worship leaders and what goes on on a Sunday and a Wednesday, but let's create healthy and appropriate and respectful dialogue with one another. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke about hell. That's not the be-all, end-all about hell. That's one portion, one part of our exploration about, unfortunately, this gloomy endeavor called hell. But I would encourage us to delve into these topics, to discuss them, to to grow and, and learn together as we pour over Scripture. So that's kind of my soapbox right there. The, the Corinthians, though, they were at least asking questions. They were creating dialogue, even if it wasn't so healthy or respectful. Paul's critics here in Corinth, they were apparently accusing him of deceitful behavior. And so what he does here is he continues his self-defense. Some of the Corinthians may have thought that because Paul didn't require the believers to follow the Mosaic law, that he was in some way watering down the gospel and making it more acceptable, that they apparently accused him of preaching easy believism. You know, it's just, you got to do a couple things, but you don't really have to do everything. But Paul's argument is this, no, 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 I'm not being deceitful. I'm not trying to manipulate or water down God's word in any way. But verse 3, he continues, if the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. On June 15th, 2013, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Etta James and her tender voice was singing out, At last my love has come along. (laughs) And the stunning, most beautiful bride-to-be, Tara Elise, Gillespie came floating down the aisle to the arbor where I was. And if you can look really closely, Bill Antrim is wearing a cowboy hat to the right of your screen. I, I missed this at our wedding, but this was impressive. I, I, kudos to, to Bill there. Uh, Tara's beauty, as you can see, was unveiled. It was on display. It was shimmering, shining, glowing. It was 
beaming for all to see. And now I've been to quite a few weddings where the bride walks down the aisle with like the fishnet over her face, right? You call it a veil. I know it's called a veil. I'm just messing with you ladies. They wear this veil over their face, and at some point during the ceremony, there's an unveiling. The veil is drawn back. Well, that's not what happened at our wedding. Tara's face wasn't hidden behind a veil, like the good news that Paul is talking about here. The gospel that Paul preaches, it's unveiled, without a veil. But he says here in verse 3, if the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it's hidden only from people who are perishing. In other words, if our message is obscure to anyone, it's not because we as the messengers are holding back in any way. No, it's because the recipients The recipients of the message are looking and going the wrong way, and they refuse to give it serious attention. Maybe they don't really pay attention during the sermon, or maybe they don't open up the Word of God, and they just trust their pastor. I'm not calling you out if you don't have your Bible here, so don't feel like, oh, he's looking at me. It's all right. We do have Bibles in the back. You can run real quick and grab one if you want, but... uh, You know, these people, they're going the wrong way. They're refusing to take a serious attention at what Paul is saying. And furthermore, verse 4 says, Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Having your mind blinded by Satan might be like seeing a matinee movie. You ever been to the movies in the middle of the day? You know, it's like, man, I got nothing to do with my day, so I'm going to go to the movies and spend three hours or so at the movies. And, And you go into the theater, and it's cool, and it's dark inside, and you completely lose all concept of time. And then by the time that the movie ends and the credits scroll, you step outside, and boom! Your eyes are seared by the blinding rays of sunlight. Anyone ever experienced that before? Your eyes, like, hurt, right? Well, that's kind of like the good news of Jesus Christ, how it's obscure and veiled to those who don't believe until the Spirit enlightens their minds. Years ago, I was at a day game at Dodger Stadium with uh, my baseball team. And uh, it must have been a slow game because all of us, me and my teammates, we were all just kids hopped up on cotton candy and Dodger Dogs and Cracker Jacks. It must have been a slow game because a couple of my teammates started messing around. They took their binoculars and they started scanning the sky. They wanted a closer view of the sun with these high-powered binoculars. And I thought better of this. But that didn't stop me from egging them on and encouraging them to do so. But as they scan the sky and finally hit the sun, you hear this girlish scream and two words, temporary blindness. I'm not even kidding. Temporary blindness. The light was so intensified that everything for them went dark for a second. 
Probably not the smartest thing to do, but no parents were there supervising. But when you see the light, when you see the light of Christ, it becomes blindingly clear just how in darkness you were before. And how your mind and your thoughts were blinded by Satan or blinded by the world, blinded by the things that are not of God. Verse 5a says, you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want to stop there on the verse because this is huge. This is really important. Paul is saying our message is not about ourselves. We are proclaiming Jesus Christ. And all we are are his messengers. We're simply errand runners from Jesus Christ. I love how Paul is here not promoting himself. He's not promoting himself. He's faithfully and humbly proclaiming Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. And that's a huge statement right there, that Jesus is Lord. It's a statement of theological and sociological and political freight. It carries some serious weight behind it. Let's take a look at each of these things. Jesus is Lord in a theological sense. As a theological statement, Jesus is Lord, says the following on the screen. I hope he's not watching polar bear videos up there. It says the word, uh, Jesus is Lord, theological. The word Lord in the Old Testament, in all caps, you'll see it in your Bibles, is rendering the tetragrammaton, basically the name of God, which is four letters in Hebrew, yod He vah And we don't really pronounce that. It's kind of, uh, Jews definitely don't pronounce it because it's, it's sacred. So they will say Adonai. We kind of say Yahweh. And what this is, is basically the Lord equals God. So in saying that Jesus is Lord, we're saying Jesus is God. All right, so that's theological. How about sociological? How it relates to society? Lord, where we get, uh, or or in which we write in English in non-capital letters, or even just a capital L, refers to persons of socially, socially superior rank or status, like Lord Vader when it comes to Star Wars. Or this is just simply like Lord Jesus, that Jesus is superior. And then thirdly, Jesus is Lord in a political sense. This is huge right here. Since this title, kurios, which is in Greek, simply Lord, was also used for the Roman emperor. You would say Caesar is Lord. Such language used to describe Jesus, a crucified Jewish Messiah, was an audacious, a bold claim, and had the potential of being regarded as politically subversive. Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, then Caesar is not not the king. So saying Jesus is, is Lord, especially in the first century, could get you killed could get you torn apart by wild beasts. It could get you set ablaze in the Colosseum. This is a political statement. This is a serious statement. This is a theological statement, a sociological statement that we are not to take lightly. When we say that Jesus is Lord, this is not an invitation to make him Lord. 
because he already is, already was, and already will be. Jesus is Lord already, and like it or not, we say it to motivate audiences to accept that arrangement. Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord of all. So let's do some table talk again. What are some things that you can do daily to ensure that Jesus is Lord of your life? The truth is, Jesus is Lord, but how do you surrender your will and your life to his lordship, to him being Lord? All right, let's finish the thought and bring it back together here. And now let's continue with uh, verse 5 in its entirety. It says, you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul's preaching that Jesus is Lord, that he himself, Paul, is a servant to the Corinthians, those to whom he actually ministers. Why did Paul act like this, being a servant to those he ministered to? Why did he act with such humility and such servanthood? Well, verse 6, I think he answers it. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, he said that back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul acted with such humility and servanthood because God dispelled the darkness in his heart by illuminating it with Jesus Christ. You know, the same goes for people here. Same goes for Francis and Judy and Alicia and Walter. The same goes for people here who serve and dedicate their lives to loving Jesus. Why? Why do you do it? What causes you? What prompts you to do that? Well, God has dispelled the darkness in your hearts and has illuminated it with Jesus Christ. I mean, I look at, I look at my brother David Jackson over here, and most of you guys, if not any of you know that he sets up the signs, the church signs, Journey the Church on the corners every single week, and he takes them down every single Sunday. And I can't tell you how many people have come to church because of that. And he doesn't want me telling you this, so I'm going to continue a little bit more about it. Uh, but man, I talk to so many people who come to church, and I say, well, all right, well, how'd you hear about Journey? Well, I saw the sign, and I stopped by. I mean, we have sleek advertising stuff on our website and on our Facebook but nothing's better than a good old sign that's right out there that you see and someone faithfully, not, not just him, but with his whole entire family, they set it up and they tear it down every single week. And I'll tell you what, those people who see the sign and come are the people actually, I think they stay. They're the ones who continue. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal. But why do we do this? Why do we serve? Why do we have such a burden to serve. Why do we have this humility and servanthood? Well, God dispelled the darkness in our hearts, and we're grateful for that. And he's shined the light of Jesus inside of us. And if you don't feel like that, if you want credit for all the stuff that you're doing, maybe God hasn't dispelled the darkness in your heart. Maybe you're seeking after the things that 
are just going to glorify yourself. Put yourself on a pedestal like this stage right here. The stage is tempting, you know? But we have to realize, especially those of us who come up on the stage, not to be tempted by it, but to serve one another. And this church does an awesome, phenomenal job. I believe that the light is shining and glowing and beaming and radiating, searing our eyeballs. Searing our eyeballs with the brilliance of Jesus in your life. I mean, I see it. It's like a bunch of flashlights, like dive lights, big old lights shining at me right now. You know, like the earth of Genesis chapter 1, the unbeliever, the unbeliever is formless and empty. But when they come to believe in Jesus, and when God says, let there be light, they become a new creation. And then God begins to form and fill that life of the person who begins to trust in Jesus. And they begin to shine for God. I believe that Paul here was actually alluding to his own experience on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. when He's blinded by the light of the unveiled face of Jesus. The glory of God burning out his eyeballs. And I pray that we would be filled with this great light. To see God at work in us and through us and around us. The message of the gospel is clear and full of light. And so too, its messengers, we, should be. Allow the light of God's love to illuminate your entire being. Now I want to close with uh, what's called a liturgy. Uh, this is from a book by a guy whose name is Shane Claiborne. And he's a homeless man in Philadelphia who chose to be a homeless man in Philadelphia to serve the homeless and to become one of them as he serves them and ministers to them. And this is a liturgy, basically a prayer book. It's called Common Prayer, a Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals. And so I invite you to stand as we pray these words. Not that you are common or ordinary. You are radical if you follow Jesus. You are extraordinary if you follow Jesus. So let's speak these words together. There's going to be four different slides, so don't stop at the first one. This is a prayer to God right now, right? So let's assume an attitude of prayer. Let's read. Walk in the light, the beautiful light. Come where the dewdrops of mercy shine bright. Shine all around us by day and by night, Jesus, the light of the world. O gracious light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven, O Jesus Christ, holy and blessed, now as we come to the setting of the sun and our eyes behold the evening light, we sing your praises, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices, O Son of God, O giver of life. Your glory fills the whole world. God, we come before you, and we thank you for your glorious light, for the light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness cannot overwhelm it. We thank you, Jesus for the life you lived and the death you poured out on the cross and the victory you gained as you rose from the grave. 
May this be our guide. May this be our hope. May this be the light in our lives as we set our eyes on you and the things above. Guide us, convict us, support us, encourage us as we support and love those around us. We love you, God, so send us out, we pray, in the name of Jesus, in the name that never fails, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much, everybody.